This is VLX number 47, the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. God grant you his peace, and nomine patri, sefiri, et spiritu sancti, amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patri, sefiri, et spiritu sancti, amen. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 20. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, two quick announcements for you here. There's some new listeners who probably jumped in after my interview with Father James Altman. It's totally fine, I think, if you just jump in where we are and then you can return to the other 45 or 46 CPX, which is my catechism series, and 45 VLX before this. Maybe just jump in and listen to VLX too. That's going to give you an idea. But what we're doing is an intricate Bible study, not just how the saints studied, but also how the saints prayed. I'm going to try to teach you how the saints prayed themselves to grow in union with Christ. And the second quick announcement is, it seems like there's a ton of people dealing with depression. Everybody knows the suicide rates are sky high out there. And so the reason I'm making this video or these videos is to be in union with Christ. I realize it's very easy for me to hammer away on the keyboard on church reform, and I have no regrets about doing that. But union with Christ as we enter a very dark time in church history and state history is going to be the only way out of this. So I really encourage you, this isn't for self-promotion. There's a lot of people who share kind of my uh, John the Baptist-y reform blogs and videos and stuff. But this is more important to share that because this is union with Christ. And this is where we're going to get through 2021 together. So if you tell your friends about what I'm doing, I'd rather you tell them about the good news um, of stuff like VLX than the, uh, the bad news of me doing the church reform stuff. <laughs> Again, I don't regret that. But this is more important. This is what I encourage you to share because Jesus is our only Savior. And that's why I'm leading this whole uh, VLX series. Okay, so where are we in the Bible today? If you remember in the last VLX, that was VLX number 46, Jesus not only healed Peter's mother-in-law, but he also healed many possessed and sick people that came up to him for healing. One of the things I failed to mention in the last one is a lot of times, a lot of these wonky scripture scholars in the 70s, they seem to have said that anyone who was healed who they thought had demons was just a sickness. That's not true. If you talk to any modern-day exorcist, they will see manifestations of real live demons with real personalities. And these exorcists, they understand very well there are real physical diseases where you can go down the rabbit hole of studying real pathophysiology. So, in other words, of course the Word of God is not erring in saying there is such thing as real diseases that Jesus healed and real possessed people that had real live demons in them. The scripture scholarship of the 1970s conflated those in reflection of a lot of the 19th century German Protestant scripture scholarship, basically saying, yeah, the people in the past were really stupid, and they thought anybody who was sick must have had a demon. But they were so stupid back then, they didn't know demons don't exist. We moderns know demons don't exist. Of course, I don't believe that. I'm saying this is the error of a lot of these scripture scholars. So it's really important to notice that as Jesus comes out of this situation of exercising those who were possessed and healing those who had diseases, these were two different types of miracles, but they were all in the same pericope of the last VLX we did. 
Okay, but to catch us up to speed again, many possessed and sick people came to Jesus for healing. So what happens today? Here's where we are. Jesus' fame spreads, and now all these people want to follow this miracle-working rabbi today. And now notice, Jesus isn't against it. It's not like he says it's a mortal sin to follow me through fame. We're going to talk about that next time. But he talks about the cost of discipleship, and that's going to be VLX 48 the next time. So notice a scribe comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Very weird response if we don't study it with the eyes of the church fathers, which we're going to do today. Now next time in VLX, we're going to talk about why Jesus had such an odd answer for the scribe who wants to follow him. But today, I want to look at those words that Catholics say all the time, and we have no idea what they mean, including me. Those three words, Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man, and we've heard so many lame explanations that you probably want to turn off this video by now. In fact, I've given many lame explanations from the pulpit, I'm sure, but today I'm going to give you what the saints say about those three words, Son of Man. They have great explanations. As we study those words, remember, the method of St. Bruno is where we study the scriptural words, and then we block out our imagination, and we meditate just on the words themselves for those 15 minutes and hopefully the rest of the day. By contrast, but equally good, is the other method of St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila, where you use your imagination very vividly in prayer to picture what? Remember? The humanity of Jesus. Well, today I'm going to give you very careful word studies. That does sound like St. Bruno, but hold on, imaginative way people. I'm going to explain why this applies so much to the imaginative way of prayer of St. Teresa of Avila and St. Ignatius of Loyola. You see, for St. Teresa of Avila, the 16th century Carmelite, and she's known in Carmelite circles as St. Teresa of Jesus, so sometimes I'll call her that, she lived in a time when people wanted big-time spiritual highs, also known as raptures and ecstasies. Now, a rapture isn't what dispensationalists believe it to be. A rapture in Catholic terms is just when the soul leaves the body because the person's prayer is so intense. Funny thing is, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Jesus, she said those were found at the lower levels of high prayer. So according to her, I've never reached the lowest levels of the higher levels of prayer. But we'll see, that's actually better than not deceiving yourself. You see, even back then, Teresa of Avila, Teresa of Jesus, she had all these nuns interested in raptures and ecstasies and stuff, maybe because Teresa of Avila was graced with a lot of these. But she brought them back to earth and showed them the number one thing that will never deceive them, the number one thing they should always meditate on, is the humanity of Jesus Christ. Not seeking after the cool gifts of the interior life, but meditating on the humanity of Jesus. Why? Because the humanity of Jesus is our exclusive link to the divinity of Jesus. Why can't we go straight to unite ourselves to his divinity? Well, by baptism and confession and the Eucharist, we are immediately united to the divinity of Christ, as well as his humanity, of course. It is true. But those sacraments become much more efficacious the deeper we go in prayer into the divine life of the Trinity. So our prayer life, not just the sacraments, must be suffused with the divine if we want to obtain maximum benefit of the sacraments. But notice, in the interior life, we can't really just, you know, work ourselves into a frenzy like the Hindus do. That invites demons. Also, it's kind of hard to, even to meditate on the combination of the divinity and humanity of Christ. That's, that's known as the hypostatic union. Remember, the hypostatic union, according to New Advent, is, quote, a reference to the incarnation to express the revealed truth that in Christ one person subsists 
in two natures, the divine and the human, end quote. Okay, how do you meditate on one person subsisting in two natures? Very difficult. Well, here's where St. Teresa of Jesus and St. Ignatius of Loyola have the amazing answer. Their answer is this. They basically say that if you take care of the meditation on the human side of things, God will take care of the divine in your soul. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but their point is that they insist it's very difficult to deceive yourself when you're just picturing the humanity of Jesus. Very difficult to deceive ourselves with false mysticism when we are very grounded in the humility, we're going to cover that word later, humus, the mortality of what it means to be human. A little personal experience here. You know, I was involved in the charismatic movement before I became a quote-unquote traditionalist. And unlike a lot of people who do the Latin Mass, I don't totally condemn all the charismatic movement. Because look, I've seen miracles involved in the charismatic movement, and I've seen demons involved in the charismatic movement. So I'm not against it in the same way most traditional priests are. But there's a danger in it where a person can work themselves up into this frenzy where it almost seems like whoever's got the most gifts is the most holy. Not, not all charismatics see it that way. So, you know, don't think I'm condemning the whole thing. But here's the thing. St. Teresa of Avila, 16th century Spain, they had some similar problems. People wanted spiritual highs. And I get it. Like, we all in these dark days want to be united to God. But Teresa of Avila had a very strong answer. She brought everyone back to meditating on the humanity of Jesus. And then you let him take care of the divinity part, namely bringing you deeper into prayer. So that's why it might seem so lame just to picture, say, the smell of the kind of challah bread that St. Elizabeth was cooking, or the fountain outside the yellow house there with her husband, St. Zachariah. Of course, I made that term up, yellow home and fountain, challah bread, but we're supposed to do that type of juvenile work in the method of St. Teresa of Avila using our imagination. So today, as you're in Matthew 8, remember this is right after Jesus exercised all those people from demons and healed all those people with diseases. Two forms of miracles are not the same. Today, there's this big crowd following Jesus and some semi-famous people, those are the scribes. They come to Jesus and they want to be his followers. We're going to study in the next one why he's a little harsh with them. But anyway, they come to him. And I want you to picture, what is it like physically in that area as you are a disciple of Jesus watching these would-be disciples come to him. The question is to ask, what is the grass like under your feet? What do the birds above you sound like when Jesus is speaking calmly to this person? What about the silent din of the crowd behind Jesus, so enthralled, but so at peace being near our Lord? These are the things to set up because it refers to his humanity. And again, if we take care of the humanity set up in our brains and our imaginations, Jesus may move us eventually in the interior life from the purgative to the illuminative to the unitive way of prayer. So even though that's all I got for those today who are following the method of St. Teresa of Avila and St. Ignatius of Loyola, I'm going to really encourage you to stick around because even though we're going to do a careful word study of son of man, according to St. Bruno, I guarantee the words of all the saints we're going to look at will totally shock you at how many levels that term, son of man, must actually exist in the method of prayer, both the way of St. Bruno and the way of St. Teresa of Jesus. In other words, you're going to learn what son of man means according to the saints. 
And why is this so important for those doing the imaginative way of prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola or St. Teresa of Jesus? Because again, this ties the humanity of Jesus directly to his divinity. St. Teresa of Jesus is very clear that Christ's humanity is your only vehicle or launching point to his divinity. Otherwise, you're in danger of deceiving yourself. So everyone, both those who don't like to use their imagination and those who do should listen to Father Lapide. This is Lapide right here, Father Lapide, who should be a saint, wrote this around the year 1600, quoting what the saints say about the Son of Man. Now, again, we've all heard the term Son of Man a thousand times at Mass, but I, and probably you, didn't know what it meant until I read the saints, and that's what I'm going to give you, just the highlights. I'm not going to just read straight from the book. The highlights from what the saints say about that. We hear these terms, Son of Man, so often. Did you even notice it was at the beginning of this podcast? Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what do those three words mean, Son of Man? So let's see what the saints say, and I'll intersperse my words into right there. Theophylact says, Christ is the Son of Man, i.e. of the Virgin Mary, his mother, for man is common gender and may be used of a male or a female, like the Greek anthropos. Yet in Greek, the masculine article to anthropou shows that the word is here restricted to signify a male. And more probably, others say son of man, i.e. son of Abraham or David. For to them it was promised that of their posterity the Messiah or Christ should be born. Hence Christ is called their son in scripture. So just a couple of my own words here. This is just saying that Jesus is showing that he is the Messiah. When he says son of man, this is a reference to the one who is promised in the line of Abraham, in the line of David, who would be the Messiah. So that's the first thing to notice. The son of man is the Messiah. Father Lapide continues, Others say Christ is the son of man, i.e. of men and of the patriarchs and kings, from whom Matthew has deduced his genealogy in chapter 1. And in the fullest sense, Christ is the Son of Man, i.e. of Adam, because he, like all other men, was sprung from Adam. For Adam is called absolutely man, because he was the first man, and the parent of the other men. Hence, Adam in Hebrew means man. There is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1, where Ezekiel, who is a type of Christ, is called Son of Man, in Hebrew, Ben-Adam, son of Adam. Hence, St. Gregory Nazianzen says, Christ is called son of Adam in the Hebrew expression to show that he did not have a man for his father, but through the Virgin Mary, he derived his generation from Adam. For he willed to be born of Adam, and by this means he might repair the fall of Adam and his posterity. So what he's saying right there is the old Adam was the father of natural life, and Jesus is the father of supernatural life, but he is in that line. Father Lapide continues, Son of man signifies more than man because man can be created by God alone as Adam was created, but son of man signifies sprung from Adam, the common parent that first might be set forth, the infinite humility of Christ, that he should deign to be sprung from a sinful man and to receive in himself his miseries and his mortality in that earthly body which he had assumed. For Adam is derived from Adama, the ground, as homo, from humus, mortalis, from morse, death. Okay, a couple things to notice right there. When Father Lapide says that he was sprung from a sinful man, that's of course not talking about his immediate family. 
He means if you look at the line from Adam all the way up to the Holy Family, there was some pretty rough characters in there, but nobody in the Holy Family itself. In fact, Jesus's grandparents were extremely, extremely holy people. But there are some uh, people of uh, spotted pasts along the way, if you look at like a family line from Adam uh, all the way to Jesus. So that's an act of humility right there, that even though Jesus was born of the sinless, immaculate Virgin Mary, if you follow the gene- the genealogy back in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3, um, it shows Christ's humility. And then the second point here, for Adam is derived from Adama, the ground from homo humus mortalis. Those three apparently have the same root word. It's where we get like hummus, it's where we get ground, it's where we get homo sapiens, it's where we get mortalis, which is death. So basically what Father Lapide is saying is every time Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, He's highlighting that here the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, is the one who's going to be subject to death. The one who is homo, humus, mortalis, from morse, which is death. But it's not just the humility of Christ that Father Lapidate points to. It is also the love of Christ, not just for the Father, but his love for us. Father Lapidate says, Son of man, therefore, denotes the perfect kindness, friendship, and condescension of Christ and the blandishments of his love by which he offers himself to men as the son of man, as a child to children, that they may delight in him as in a most sweet little one and enjoy his company as that of a most agreeable brother, according to the words, my delights were to be with the children of men, Proverbs 8.31. Why dost thou fear, O man, to draw nigh to Jesus? Lo, he is the Son of Man. Why tremblest thou, O sinner, at the wrath of God? Come unto Jesus, the Son of Man, made a little child for thee. In other words, how much he loves to be with us. Every time Jesus says, Son of Man, he's telling everybody around him how much he loves to be with them. This is is written in the 17th century. I'm not giving you... Just sappy modernism. This is written in the year 1600. He continues, It is the prodigy of condescension, the prodigy of love, the prodigy of all ages, that the only begotten Son of God should for men deign to become the Son of Man and to have his converse with men. That means conversation or lifestyle with men. That he might teach them the way of salvation and redeem them by his cross and make them happy in heaven. So he came for us. When he says the Son of Man, it was for us that he came to be with us for our salvation. Father Lapide continues, For anthropos, that is, man, as Plato says in the dialogue, kratilus means anthropon ha apope. That is, contemplating what he sees. Others interpret it as ano peton, that is, upward inclined, that is, toward heaven. Okay, you can't see the Greek words probably too well right there, but what he's saying there is... The very word, man, I had no idea about this until I read this. If you dissect the words anthropos, and you know that's the root word of like anthropology, it's just the Greek word for man, anthropos, he gives two different etymologies in Greek itself for that. One means contemplating what he sees, and he breaks this word up here. Anthropos in Greek means contemplating what he sees, and then also it means upward inclined or towards heaven. Or in other words, these are the two different etymologies that were probably competing at the times. But either way, both of these mean man looking up to the heavens, man trying to unite himself to God, 
And so son of man, this goes right back to what I was telling you about the hypostatic union. The very word man implies something of the longing for the hypostatic union. Man looking up to heaven, man contemplating the very word son of man, rather the very word man implies man's longing for God. And who is the great fulfillment of that? Jesus, because he is God and man. So son of man has so many different levels here. Finally, St. Jerome says this, however low you may abase yourself, you cannot be more lowly than Christ. Even supposing that you walk barefooted, that you dress in somber garb, that you rank yourself with the poor, that you condescend to enter the tenements of the needy, that you are eyes to the blind, hands to the weak, feet to the lame, that you carry water and hew wood and make fires, even supposing that you do all this, where are the chains, the spitting, the buffets, the scourges, the gibbet, the death which the Lord endured? And even when you have done all the things I have mentioned, you are still surpassed by Eustochium as well as by your sister Paula for considering the weakness of their sex. They have done more work relatively, if less absolutely, than you. End quote. Okay, so the end of that, St. Jerome is writing this in a letter that even the saints are outdoing you in penance. But the first part is fascinating. What he's saying in connection to this term, son of man, what St. Jerome is saying here is, Jesus is God. He's the creator of supernovas and 100 billion galaxies. And each of these 100 billion galaxies has 100 billion stars in it. And look at the level of humility the Son of Man enters into. That The maker of supernovas, not even the greatest saint, has gone as low as him into the cross, into the humiliation of what he endured, even the humiliation of his, of his entire life. We'll close with these words just repeating from St. Jerome. Again, St. Jerome is saying, Nobody can imitate the humility of the Son of Man. However low you may abase yourself, you cannot be more lowly than Christ. Even supposing that you walk barefooted, that you dress in somber garb, that you rank yourself with the poor, that you condescend to enter the tenements of the needy, that you are eyes to the blind, hands to the weak, feet to the lame, that you carry water and hew wood and make fires, even supposing that you do all this, where are the chains? It means the chains of the passion when Jesus was chained and drugged like a criminal. The spitting, the buffets, the scourges, the gibbet, the death which the Lord endured. And please say an hour, Father, for me, et benedictio deum nepotentis, patris et spiritus santi, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.